Welcome to the RSA Events Podcast, the home of world-changing ideas and debate. Hello and good afternoon everyone. My name is Sabrina Barr. I'm a lifestyle writer for The Independent and I'm delighted to welcome you all to today's special RSA lunchtime talk, A Survival Guide to Social Media. I am honoured to be joined today by Naomi Shimada, a model, writer and author who will be sharing her insights into the way in which our digital habits on social media impact us on an emotional level. Naomi has been featured in publications including Vogue, Elle and The Observer, in addition to starring in campaigns for several major brands. She has developed her platform by speaking out against oppressive practices and unrealistic beauty standards in the fashion industry. Naomi has co-authored a book with journalist Sarah Raphael titled Mixed Feelings. The book delves into how social media affects many aspects of our lives on a daily basis, including our careers, relationships, self-image, how we spend our leisure time, and the role social media is playing for future generations growing up in the digital sphere. It's undeniable that social media has become an integral component of many of our lives. It appears to be very paradoxical as we frequently flip between loving and hating it, between feeling as though we're connected to people all around the world to feeling very alone. As a digital journalist, a large portion of my role consists of always keeping an eye on social media for the latest trending news and monitoring social media to see how readers are responding to our content. When we spend so much time in social media, it can make it difficult to separate our professional and personal lives and to not compare our achievements to those of others who, who are on our social media feeds. Very soon, we will be hearing from Naomi as she shares her thoughts on the emotional impact of social media and stories from her book, Mixed Feelings. She and I will then have a follow-up discussion before we open up the floor for some questions. So please join me in welcoming Naomi Shimada. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, Sabrina, for such a warm introduction <laughs> and to the RSA for having me. Um, good afternoon, everyone. My name is Naomi Shimada, and I've worked as a model in the fashion and advertising industries for over 15 years, but it was really the invention of social media and specifically Instagram that changed the course of my career. My life on the internet began to escalate as I became a more dominant voice in the fight for inclusivity in fashion. Um, in my early 20s, my body started to change and suddenly I wasn't skinny enough to model for normal brands anymore. I looked at the world around me, at TVs, movies, magazines, desperate to just see another body that looked like mine. But it seemed obvious to me, and it became very clear that whether you were a scientist, a chef, an actor, as a woman, you had to be sample sized to be deemed socially acceptable. So Instagram came to me at a time where I was desperate to find a place to be able to express myself as I truly am, to be able to see and create imagery that fought the narrow-minded beauty ideals that we see everywhere. It felt like and especially Instagram, felt like the first place I could put all these different parts of me together in one place that made cohesive sense. But as someone that's been very prevalent on social media, I have benefited so greatly from its invention. It's allowed me to represent myself truly as I am. As a model, usually you have to rely on a in, in the olden age, before the, before the internet, you relied on you know, modeling agents, competitions, certain things to get you in, in the public sphere. 
but Instagram allowed me to represent myself and be my own boss and you know, earn a somewhat stable living. It allowed me to travel the world and not only connect, but find and cultivate some of my deepest friendships. But these positives came with their own set of negative contentions. As Instagram quickly evolved into a platform for celebrity, social, and political influence, everything suddenly on my feed felt like it needed to be polished and more self-promotional. The app had quickly become a workspace where we were supposed to only put our best selves forward at all times. The lines between my work self, as Sabrina says she struggled with too, the lines between my work self and my real self really started to become more and more blurred. Suddenly, everything I did in my life, whether I was cooking, going for a walk, having dinner with my loved ones or friends, suddenly could be content. It all started to get very confusing, you know? When did my work life and work self end and my real self begin? As my follower numbers increased, and I started to sometimes earn money from sponsored posts, the innocence of how I used the app started to get lost. With the introduction of the stories, features, and close friends making us once again change and adapt our digital behaviors, I was left thinking, are we the ones evolving these apps or are these apps changing us? As my success with it increased, so did the weight of my responsibility. What do you lose when you start to commodify your own authenticity? Do you become less you? I started to carry a sense of guilt of, of showing and selling a lifestyle that wasn't and isn't attainable to everyone. I became increasingly aware that happiness on social media is intertwined with capitalistic ideals of success. Is this what I wanted? Or was this an ideal that I had absorbed from societal messaging on social media? I was getting lost in the culture of comparison that apps like Instagram exacerbate. No matter what I did, nothing seemed to feel like I was doing enough. I felt like my phone had this silent but booming voice that was always asking for more of my time, my attention, and all of my energy. When did capturing a moment become more important than being in the moment? When did uploading a moment suddenly become more important than being there in the first place? Does recording a moment make us remember the moment differently when we're looking back at it through a screen? Why do we feel the incessant need to post immediately like the moment is invaluable if not live streamed? This all really came to a head when there came a moment last year where my Instagram-induced anxiety started to become a depression that was making me feel like I was t out of time and out of options. I felt so heavy that doing the most menial of tasks felt like my own equivalent of climbing Everest. But it turns out I had become a statistic. A study published in September found that, 6, 000, that of 6,600 young people, those who spent more than three hours a day on social media were, like, were more likely to develop mental health problems, including anxiety and depression. The stats are far from ideal considering how addicted we are to our phones. We bring them to the bathroom, to bed, to dinner. We're on them, sometimes on them from the moment we, we wake up next to the people we love and scrolling in meetings where we actually should be listening. We have a problem. Typically, we now pick up our phone over 80 times a day. That translates to roughly around 2,600 
clicks, taps, and swipes on a daily basis. If you start to do the math over weekly, monthly, yearly, you begin to understand the extent of our problem. Phones, advertising-based apps, and social media are all designed to be hard to stop using because it is their business model. These companies are so good at manipulating our brain chemistry that we often don't even realize that we're being manipulated. By always making sure there's a new post or potential like waiting for us, they have conditioned us to associate checking our phones with getting a reward, which makes us want to check our phones even more because it makes us feel valued. And as human beings, since the beginning of time, we've always wanted to feel valued, loved, and appreciated. Phone time is affecting everything from our memories, our attention spans, to our creativity, productivity, relationships, stress levels, physical health, and sleep. So in short, if you feel like your phone is changing you, you are not crazy. It is. <laughs> and when you can't check our phones, our bodies release stress hormones, such as adrenaline and cortisol. We become twitchy and irritable. We reach for our phones in our pockets, even though we know they're not there. We exhibit what addiction specialists would immediately recognize as symptoms of withdrawal. So me and my friend, Sarah Raphael, who's worked as a digital editor in the fashion industry for the last decade, decided to write a book about all these weird feelings that we have in isolation on our phone. There has to be an, an emotional fallout from our digital use. Social media and the internet is what has changed our lives more than, ev more than anything this generation. We decided to write a book about all these things because we felt like so many of the news articles that covered social media were so stat-based and missing a very human element considering how many of us are affected by these issues. Alone on our phones, we can also create, when you feel these things, it creates a sense of shame because we are alone. And in that moment, it feels like it's, it's only us that it's happening to. To have a smartphone and to be on social media in this day and age is to have mixed feelings about it. So we wanted to create a space that encouraged real dialogue on how this technology is affecting our minds, hearts, and souls. With mixed feelings, we hope to encourage others to not only share stories, but to create more awareness around what this technology is actually doing to us. And with, with that information, how can we begin to think and act differently around it? Through working on this book about our relationships to social media, I realized it was exactly that, a relationship. And so I realized I needed to treat it like one. For it to be healthy and functional, I needed boundaries, I needed breaks, I needed room to breathe, and I needed to set my own expectations. Still at this present moment, the thought of completely stepping away from social media feels slightly unimaginable. Because after all, I owe my career to it, and it's also been one of my biggest resources of education. I still want to be a per part of the digital world, but I just need to take into account that apps like Instagram want to keep all of us hooked. So by taking breaks and choosing when to be online, I want to hope that I can continue to be part of, part of sharing and creating the world I want to see and be a part of. I think ultimately, it's about trying to make sure that when we use our phones, it's a conscious choice. We're, we are going to slip up, because after all, having a perfect relationship with our phones is nearly impossible when you consider all the persuasive technology that goes into it. You know, these apps are engineered by the same engineers who make gambling programming. You know, scroll down, ding, 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 ding. <laughs> you recognize the feeling.
So, but the, simply the point for us is to just have a clearer sense of what a healthier relationship to this technology looks like. So we can create an awareness around our own behavior patterns so we can try to take some kind of control over our time, our mental space, but most importantly, our sanity. For me, coming out of this whole experience, it was amazing to be reminded of the fact that my self-worth is not based on a number of followers or likes. That whatever I achieve or accomplish in my professional life is not what makes me more worthy as a person. That whatever, that my abundant human complexity is not determined by a wall of images. That just because something looks good doesn't mean it is good. And I think that's something we can all relate to, you know? And so I try as much as I can on a daily basis to make decisions based on how they feel over just how they look. I feel truly rich in love, connection, and experience, and while Instagram has at times facilitated some of these things, I know deep down that I am the source of that richness, that I am the source of that wealth, and no app can ever take my place. That in a world where this technology doesn't seem like it's going anywhere anytime soon, that if we want social media to grow up, we're the ones who have to grow ourselves up. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Naomi. That was so interesting to hear your thoughts about social media and how it affects us. And one of the th things that you said which really stood out to me was that you described social media as a source of education. Mm -hmm. And that was also something which stood out to me when reading Mixed Feelings because in your book you include such a plethora of voices. Mm -hmm. You know, we hear from you and Sarah and we hear from journalists and artists and psychologists. And I think, you know, hearing all those different voices and their thoughts on social media reinforces the fact that when we question social media and question whether it's good or bad, there is no singular answer that we can give. You know, it's very multifaceted and complex. Mm -hmm. So how do you feel about social media as a source of education and also a source of being able to come across so many different voices of people of all different backgrounds, some voices which are very positive and illuminating and motivating and some voices which take part in online trolling and are very negative and damaging? I think what's amazing about social media is that we can also create our own echo chamber. You know, like I said in my introduction, for me, I started on social media to see what I, to find and create what I wanted to see in the world. And I think that's been one of the most powerful things about social media is, you know, the diversity it's been able to introduce to the world. You know, in terms of voices, in terms of beauty ideals, in terms of perspectives. And it's been such a powerful tool for me to be able to learn about other people's experiences, you know, and just giving me a better, more well rounded idea of how other people experience the world. And that's what's cool about social media, because we can choose to click and follow those pe people that we want to hear more of. And we can choose to unfollow or not follow in the first place or mute people that don't make us feel good, you know, whether that's in terms of news, whether that's in terms of imagery. And that access to perspectives on, you know, we have access to the whole world now, and sometimes that is the overwhelming element. But when it comes to education, for me, it's been a huge part of me finding my own place in the world and my own language to kind of be able to put into words how I actually feel by being able to compare my experiences to others. And of course, like you said, we have the power of choosing who we follow and unfollow, but sometimes 
if you're exposed to various individuals on social media, perhaps because you've seen some of their posts and the algorithm is of Instagram or yeah. Twitter exposed you to even more, you can fall into a hole of comparing yourself and making yourself feel lesser than, even though, of course, we all have value. And you can find yourself comparing your achievements to others, even if you are very, you know, have achieved lots of great things and other people might be doing the same with you. Yeah. So do you think that social media has heightened the way that we compare ourselves to others? Or do you think that's something that we've always done in social media is just shone a bit more light on it? I mean, I think it's both. The most amazing experience, uh, part, part of this experience of working on this book was realizing that to write a book about social media was to write a book about the human experience. Because all of these feelings that you feel make us, you know, are, are the things that make us innately human. But like I said, it, social media does exacerbate them, you know? We've compared ourselves to other humans since the beginning of time, since hunter-gatherer times, and, and it, it, was, it was about a quest for survival, right? Who's the strongest? You know, who's going to catch me the biggest animal, <laughs> you know? But now, and, you know, we used to, before pre the internet, we only compared ourselves and to the people who were in our immediate existence, you know, so people we went to school with or work or who lived on our street or lived in our village, you know, in your office. Um, but now we have, we have access to the whole world. We are looking at what everybody else is doing. So now we're comparing ourselves to the rest of the world. And it is easy to fall into these holes. I mean, I did myself, you know, and through deeply falling in it and having to pull myself out is how, and it's not that I didn't have a sense of self-worth before, you know, like I've been working on that my whole life. But it's so easy to forget when you fall into these online spirals, you know, I, most people who li who have an online existence or have used the internet can fall into that, you know, whether you use Facebook or Twitter, you know, because um, my co-author Sarah always refers back to the Char that Charlie Booker quote about Black Mirror that any kind of anything on social media can just be translated to please authenticate my existence. You know, and, and I think about that all the time. We're all just screaming to be seen and valued and heard and, you know, and because going, like, it is an innately human quality to want to be seen and appreciated by others. But I think it's just about creating awareness, like, and self-awareness around these issues that when we're seeking external validation on this kind of level, you know, like, that we can get so lost in it. I, 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 think of it as almost like a hungry ghost syndrome, that you're just feeding this, you're, you're needing to feed yourself constantly, but it's never enough. That if you base your value on this thing, it's never gonna be enough. Yeah. And really going through, not just working on this book, but my own journey on social media is what really reminded me of that, you know, because I don't know how I thought my life was gonna turn out when I was younger, but I've already done, so many things and survived so many crazy situations and have beautiful friends and have, have had this, so many crazy experiences that it's really the experiences and the challenges that I value now and coming out of that. And how many, and social media really does like to make us seem like those Kodak moments in life are the only important things. You know, those promotions, those holidays, those, you know, those specific big life moments and how many of us can relate to that moment once you got there not really feeling how you thought it was going to feel 
I think we've all had those experiences where you put everything on a pedestal and you're like, this is the thing that's going to save my life. This marriage, this, 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 that. And, and you get there and you're like, oh God, it's not because, and it's a reminder that we have to find happiness and pleasure in the smaller moments. And I think that's what was really the most powerful lesson for me coming out of that, you know, glances with strangers, like free coffee, you know, like seeing a beautiful bird. Like, I think the craziest thing about social media is it makes us constantly feel like we're running out of time. I think the idea of time is what has really changed under the guise of the internet. And to remember to slow down, you know, I, I, I'm talking about this as a person who reminds herself on the, of this on a daily basis because I get caught up too because I'm like, oh my God, time, where is this year gone, you know? And, and that's really been the best part of this experience for me to be reminded of the smaller things. I'm following on from that Charlie Brooker quote that you mentioned about us feeling as though we need to authenticate ourselves all the time. I feel as though social media has also evolved in the sense that I remember when I first got Facebook and I was at school, it was just for my friends. Yeah. And, you know, you were trying to impress your friends, but I wasn't even thinking about trying to impress strangers. Yeah. Whereas now it's all about trying to tweet something that, you know, hundreds of thousands of strangers across the world will like who you'll never meet. Yeah. But that validation from strangers has become almost more valuable I mean, than validation from... That, like, <laughs> that, that need to, incessant need to be like funny and clever all the time. It's so much pressure. <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's tricky. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we've spoken about comparing ourselves to other people and on social media. And that also does carry across, of course, to body image. And which is an issue that has been discussed with increasing prevalence in the media in recent years, the way in which social media platforms, especially platforms like Instagram that are all to do with photo sharing, yeah. can lead to young people and especially young girls and young women experiencing body dis dissatisfaction and low self-esteem. So how do you feel that social media platforms can become better equipped at promoting body acceptance? I think... That's just, it's quite a difficult question because it has, to me, many answers. Because in some ways, I think social media just has really promoted and diversified our ideals of beauty. You know, it's the first, I think social media has, is the cause of a big shift in how advertising has changed. You know, sometimes I look at posters now and think, wow, or campaigns or TV ads and like, you know, see the racial diversity, the size diversity. The only thing I still think there's a big problem with is age diversity. And even though I've, I've started, I, I started talking about these issues over a decade ago, they are really starting to take shape, you know, literal shape. <laughs> and um, so, and I think that is because you know, advertising and campaigns and big brands have seen how much engagement there is with real body shapes and real people. And, you know, I think it's democratized in some ways advertising standards of, of beauty. So I think it has been a powerful shift because, you know, where else can you see, you know, fat black women being free and beautiful, you know, or like, you know, the, even like the body positive movement, you know, happened because of the internet and social media. And to see people being themselves 
you know, is so beautiful. And I think that is powerful. But of course, with the invention of, you know, Facebook, uh, I mean, Facebook, I mean, uh, like filters and Facetune and all of these things that do warp our ideals of what faces and bodies, the Kardashians, like, you know, these are completely engineered people. <laughs> They're not, you know, and the danger is, I think, for young people to see that as a standard, you know, like that is the standard of beauty that we should be striving towards. And it's not just young people, it affects all of us, you know, but it's difficult because I think, you know, the pro I think the, the standards, the filtering standards, especially like on Instagram about nudity or what is acceptable on there, the guidelines, I think those are the things that need to be looked at, you know, like the criminalization of nipples, but you know, the kind of, you know, the variation of other things you'll see on there, which I think are far more offensive or dangerous and irresponsible, you know? So the guidelines, I think, are sometimes what's really sticky. Because of course, how do you, it's how many images are being uploaded on a daily basis. I, I know it must be hard to keep control, but I think it's also such a powerful place to see new things. So, and, and it's the first place in the media where we've been able to see different versions of beauty, you know? So I think in terms of visibility, it's been more positive than negative overall. And, you know, you mentioned how on some social media platforms where people upload photos that have been digitally altered, you know, using Facetune and Instagram recently or the, the company that creates certain filters for Instagram recently banned filters that look, make you look as though you've had plastic surgery um, and all that sort of thing. And then also with social media, it's helped, while it's helped to bridge the gap between celebrities and the general public, it has also allowed many people to forge very successful careers and become very well known yeah. as social media stars. And that has led to the difficulty of sussing out who is authentic when these people who have, you know, risen in stardom are promoting products that may be health related and might not be medically sound or are uploading pictures that have been digitally altered, but to their followers' knowledge, it's really them. So how do you feel that people on social media can suss out who is being genuinely authentic and who isn't? I mean, I think for me, that's complicated because to me, none of this is new. I think there's always been like a lack of authenticity and, and like makeup, imagery, Photoshop, that's existed for a really long time already where we've like, or you know, how, how, do, how well do we ever know people? And as people, do we owe our most authentic versions of ourselves to the rest of the world? Like, can't we keep some of that private? So I, I, ha I have a problem with some of that sometimes because I sometimes I feel, I, at moments I felt like I, I owe more of myself to the internet and to the public, which I actually don't. I actually give, give more than enough. And some things should be kept to ourselves. And, but that, the boundaries are our own decisions. You know, we don't owe the public our full selves. And I think, the idea around authenticity has also been commodified now, you know, which is a discomfort I write about a lot, you know, like people coming to you for your values, your morals, what you stand for in the world, and putting a price tag on it, which I, str I struggle with that, you know, I struggle 
when people come to you and want you to be, you know, like even that word activist, how much that's changed in the, you know, in the age of the internet. I mean, I ask people to not refer to me as an activist because to me, I just have an opinion and I have some life experience and I'm happy to talk about it. But like, we use that word so fleetingly now. We add it onto everyone's job title. But like, we, we explore this in the book as well, like what, what is online activism, you know? So for me personally, I think commoditizing our authenticity is just like a murky, you know, and, and celeb big celebrities have always pushed products that they don't really know whether they've been certified, you know, whether it's like diet pills or, you know, gym routines or, you know, when, when the infomercials with the shopping network, all these things, like, it's, it's a business. And, but I think at least having these conversations where people are aware of what goes into image making, like, I'm happy to talk about what goes into, the, what goes into an image. Like, when I'm on set, you know, there's usually 10 other people there. You know, someone is putting really nice light on my face and someone did my makeup and someone did my hair. And, you know, even though like, I don't wear so much makeup on a day-to-day -day basis when I'm not working because I associate it with work, you know, but I'm happy to discuss what goes into the image making because it is magic and it is a team and I am grateful to a team and we all work on this together. But if you're not in the industry, you might not understand. So at least... Taking that into context, it's like, okay, 10, person, 10 people worked on that face. And that's why maybe I don't look like that. And just being able to have a realistic understanding of the science and the art form that is making the making of an image. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree that there needs to be, if there's greater awareness behind what goes into images, that would yeah. solve a lot of issues. But do you think that perhaps young people, teenagers and kids who are on social media who don't have this increased awareness and don't have access or just haven't heard people like you speaking so openly about it do you think there needs to be better education Definitely. about yeah i think there always needs to be better education mm -hmm. i think it's a, a, a crime that we don't pay teachers enough i think it's a crime that we're taking you know all the youth centers away i think it's a crime that we don't talk to young people there aren't more young people talking to young people you know and i i mean going forward Disclaim, I mean, I would love to do more work with young people, you know, but because I know it is a problem, you know. Sarah, who, my co-author, she works with a young woman's charity in South London, and she told me a story where, you know, like, girls can have WhatsApp groups where they all, like, share images of each other and everyone, like, if there's a group photo, and everyone will have, the, the image will get sent back and forth and everyone edits their own self in the picture before it gets posted. You know, that's a lot of, that's a lot of work. But also, that makes me sad because youth is such a prime time. We have the rest of our lives to worry about what we're going to look like and how we are and how we are perceived, you know? So that's what makes me really sad that that age bracket has moved even younger to, to have so much self-concern over, over how we are perceived by others. It's a, it's a real robbing of, an, of innocence when we already get robbed of our innocence way too soon anyway, but that's just like sped it up. But, you know, I think sometimes things come to a head, right? I think there is an, kind of an, you know, even brands like Glossier doing really well or these kinds of, the extremities now of like super contouring drag race from makeup to like this like real no makeup thing that's happening at the moment. 
you know, um, and that makes me feel like there is a huge shift happening, you know. So I have hope, you know, and like having these discussions here, taking them out into the real world, you know, I think so much, so much change happens on the ground from us talking to one another. So I have hope. <laughs> um, you also mentioned how sometimes you're made to feel as though you're not giving enough on social media and then you remind yourself, like, of course, you know, I, I, I choose how much I put myself out there on social media. And did you, did you acquire that sense of self-awareness of how much you're putting on social media over time or is that something you've always been aware of? No, it's trial and error. Mm. All of this stuff is so new for all of us. Yeah. How could any of us have perceived how big this thing was going to get? And, you know, um, I had a, a, I wrote an article in The Observer last Sunday and for it, I went, I scrolled all the way back to initially the, the beginning of my feed just to see how I, it had evolved and how my style of posting had evolved, you know, and I was laughing when I, when I got to the beginning. It was something so sweet and so innocent about it. It was just like photos of cats under people's cars and like photos of omelets with little like smiley faces on them and, you know, like text messages for me and my sister because it was, when I initially started it, it was really a peer-to-peer -peer image sharing app, you know, alongside some modeling photos or whatever, but there was a shift in, through the commodification of social media when it became a way for how I earned my living, but also my portfolio of my work. So it was a workspace. Like people don't look at like model portfolio. I used to have to go. I know London really well because I spent 10 years with an A to Z guide, pre-Google Maps, pre-smartphones, you know, riding every bus to a casting where I stood in a queue for an hour and then presented a book where people would go through my photos while looking at me because that's not awkward, right? And, and, you know, and that was how I used to be casted for jobs. I never go to castings anymore, ever. My, my work doesn't work like that for me anymore. People just look at my Instagram. So I can't post as many cats. I felt, I, I felt, <laughs> I suddenly felt like it wasn't the appropriate place to do that anymore, which I still, try to find the balance of still posting things that make me me because if it's all work it just makes me just feel weird you know and so I try to find a shift to post things that give me joy because I think that's also what's cool about social media is that you know we live in a new cycle that is telling us every day that the world is ending and this is the dark ages and it's all over and you know you know, rise of fascism, all the ice blocks are melting, every animal is going extinct, and it's like, you know, finding that middle ground of being a, part, a person of the world, but also sharing things that, the beautiful things that still exist among us, whether it's human connection, the birds, you know, the, the things that make us laugh and give us joy and give us hope. I think hope is a really important emotion. So trying to find the balance of posting that plus my work, you know, so... Yeah, it's, it's, it's evolved so much, but it, it, try, it is a workspace for so many of us, especially in the creative industries, you know? So trying to find the middle ground is hard, but important. And now looking back at who I was then, I'm still essentially the same person, but I don't think any of us could have 
really planned what this was going to be, you know, and we're still working it out. And it's still, all this technology is still so new that we don't really have full on research. You know, it's going to be years till we have that, but just we're, we're basing how, how things are and how we immediately feel right now, which is a lot. The emotional impact is a lot, which is why we wrote this book. Mm. And you mentioned now, and you've mentioned in the book as well, about how you choose to post pictures on Instagram that spark joy in you, like your dance videos, or pictures of flowers, or your travel pictures. Yeah. Um, and that's an approach which I've, you know, before I'd even read the book, it was something I've been trying to do as well. Because in the past, I would maybe post pictures that I thought I would get likes, or I would hashtag in a certain kind of way, because I thought, you know, if I hashtag the way I wanted to, I would look weird. Yeah. Um, but I've been trying to post in a way that, you know, I'm posting pictures that make me feel happy. And I feel like it has actually made me enjoy using Instagram more. Yeah. Um, so, you know, in terms of the way that you use Instagram, posting these pictures that you find joyful, um, how has that helped your emotional state when using social media? I think it makes me use it in a way that's just more considered, but um, not just in a business sense, but like, if I could look back at my own feed, which is weird, right? We're all self-objectifying ourselves in a way that we never have, have done before. Like as a model, I self-objectified myself my whole life, you know, but it was, my, it was my job. But now everyone is doing that and looking back at themselves. It's an out-of-body experience where you're perceiving your own life back through your screen. But, you know, sometimes I look back and I laugh and it makes me smile and it's the things that make me happy on there. And I think it's like, like I said in my introduction, kind of, does this feel right? How does this feel over just how things look all the time? Like, if it makes me happy and it's something that I want to share, I will. But also, like, you know, it's not that I have the most amount of followers at all, you know, compared to, but that's still a lot of people. So I try not to, it, it, it's trying to find that weird middle ground again, basing it on feeling of like, this loads of, posting something that I know loads of people are going to watch, but also it being something that I just love for myself that I want to share and not, you know, because taking into context that the, the population of a small city follows me. So sometimes posting something is like, I don't want the, the added pressure of eyes to kind of change what I, the kind of thing that I innately feel like I want to share. Mm -hmm. So it really is more of a feeling-based exercise. And you also previously mentioned how much we go on social media on a daily basis. I think you said it was 80 times a day, which is... Well, we pick up our phones. Pick up our phones 80 day, times yeah. a day and use social media so much. And, you know, I can't imagine what the world would be like now without social media. It's, you know, it's something that seems unimaginable. Yeah. Um, so, you know, realistically, I doubt any of us would be like, oh, yeah, I could give up social media tomorrow because it's become such so integral in our lives. But, yeah. you know, for those of us who use it so much, and especially, you know, with me, I use Twitter a lot for my job, like first yeah. thing in the morning. So how do you think that we can start to follow, like, healthier practices, like still using social media, but maybe just, like, monitoring how we do it? I think it's just getting to know ourselves better and our own self-awareness around these things. Like it is, like I said, it, it is a relationship, you know? So if something or somebody was making you feel bad, how would you deal with that situation? You know, whether it was a substance or a person or how would you limit your time or your use of something? I think that's an interesting analogy to think about it because 
so many of us are using this thing and maybe not, and we've just accepted it as part of our daily lives now instead of remembering that we have a choice in how we want to interact with it, even though it's difficult because it is engineered to addict us. That is like, don't forget, but take that into context and understand that it's not your fault that you get lost in the scroll and an hour later you're lying on your bed with your phone on your stomach and you're like, where did my hour go? <laughs> you know, I and we, we laugh because we're all guilty of it. It happens to us. It's, it's like the time sucker, right? So I think just understanding what are the positives to it for you? What are the negatives? If something makes you feel bad, whether it's a, a person or a headline or whatever, you know, how do you want to deal with that? What does time off of it feel like for you? You know, do you have weekends off? Do you have a week off? Do you, I think, to, uh, I think what's helpful is definitely sometimes taking a step back from it to, un, to just to remember how it feels. And what you can also, you know, if you're upset about the time that it sucks away from you, have realistic goals of, okay, what do you want to replace that with? This year I decided I wanted to read more that my attention span was totally messed up because of social media. <laughs> you know, we have a, a, like a minute attention span. I mean, you know this because you can literally see how long people spend reading your articles, right? Yeah. Yeah, it, it's like short, shorter and shorter and shorter, I'm sure, because, you know, we're literally reading the top line of everything now, and I wanted to retrain my brain how to read again. So I've been giving my task, myself a task, and now I'm reading like a, a book a week. I've never read so much in my life. And it's completely changed how I feel. I feel really smart now. It's really cool. <laughs> like, you know, and, and to be able to remember that I can create time for the things that I love still instead of complaining like, oh, my God, my phone, you know, because we have to actively take a choice because it is really difficult. So what do you want more out of your life? You know, what are, you, what are the rules? No phones at dinner time. Do you ask your friends sometimes? Do you pull each other up on it with your loved ones? Like, hey, I'm just, do you mind just, you know, not being on your phone while we're at dinner? I just want to connect with you or whatever, as cheesy as that sounds. Like, how are you going to implement these ideas into our real lives when we're so used to just like, it's boredom, it's loneliness, it's all these things. We'd rather scroll because it fills a place. It, it's a temporary high, just like a substance or a... And I think that's the way we have to think about it, you know, that we have... It's, it's the hungry ghost, you know, because we, we scroll and then we have the little high and then it quickly dissipates. And what are the more long-term things that give you happiness? So I think everything comes back to self-awareness, understanding what your own patterns are, your own behaviors and what your goals are going forward with this stuff. And also, realistically, don't be hard on yourself. You know, like, we, we, we're all deemed to fall back into these traps. It's just being able to, through the self-awareness, realize when you're doing it and be able to pull yourself back out again. Because sometimes, you know, social media makes us feel good and, and there's positives to it. it de there definitely are, are. So it's just navigating what is right for you personally. I'm not going to speak for everybody else, but, you know, I'm just, I'm learning. And also, like we said, the irony of writing a book about social media and then, and then having to use social media to promote it, you know, uh -huh. and being a person 
that has to do that. The irony is not lost on me. And like to physically be able to write this book and have the mental space to be able to do it, I took a lot of time off because I had to concentrate. And I also wanted to write from my own perspective instead of listening to what everybody else was doing, which is what the internet is, right? Sometimes, like like I said before, it's like, is this what I think, or am I just listening to every what everybody else thinks, and is that becoming what I think? You know, so I. I went off of it for a while just to be able to focus. And time felt different. Time, you know, I got time back. A lot, you know, what felt like a lot of it, you know, and to be able to reanalyze again my relationship to how I wanted to, to how I wanted it to be going forward. But then now I'm stuck in the trap right now again because I'm in the middle of crazy book mode and you know, I I'm falling under the pressure to have to like post about it and you know people don't buy as many books as they used to it's a hard time to sell books and like you have to be a person that's like in pushing it and making it like keeping it alive which of course I want people to read it you know and but so at the moment I've been struggling again with it because I'm like god I don't feel like it because I know now that I like to be off of it so just finding that balance of I know things will calm down and it won't always be like this but I definitely do feel the effects more now that I've taken I know what time is like off of it so it's it's a struggle it's a struggle and I think that's what the book really is about of just telling people like there is no right and wrong there we all have our own personal experiences and at least talking about it and being like it's weird is makes us feel better about it cuz these things really do happen to us alone on our phones. Like, how many people have dropped a phone onto their face before? You know, like, that's not, this isn't, you know, it's crazy. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Naomi. It's now time to open up the floor for some questions. If you have one, please raise your hand. We can, uh, yes, this lady in the front seat. Oh, sorry, you've got a mic coming. There you go. <laughs> so we know that even having your phone next to you gives you a decline in cognitive ability. So just the mere presence of a smartphone next to your desk while you're trying to work means that you can't focus. So I wanted to ask you a really practical question about when you wrote your book. Where was your phone? I know you might have been off social media, but... Oh, my phone. Yeah. I, I put it in all different kinds of places, actually. Did you have to remove it? Oh, yeah. I just turned it off. Did you? Turn it off, yeah. and I would hide it from myself. Yeah, you know, like long? in new places, like under the bed. You know, <laughs> like I, I, I have to go to extreme measures to retrain your brain yeah. to just let it go. Because I think it is possible to, like, you know, it is a withdrawal symptom. You know, and just having it anywhere close to you makes it, like, like I called it the invisible voice. You know, like, like come to me, pick me up. Like it's like talking to you. You know, and. So how long could you go for without looking at your phone? Because this is a real problem in kind of non-creative industries and organizational life where you're trying to get people to concentrate and control what they pay attention to. Creative and non-creative, everyone. We're all struggling. So how far could you, how long could you go before you think? Could you concentrate for 90 minutes, say? And yes. did, were you able to train your focus? Yes. Sometimes to keep I would going. do hours at a time. Okay. And okay. not even want to turn it back on again. And I and because I was writing on a computer. You know, the ex turn my emails off. Yeah. You know, turn my, like, my, because I have a, an Apple computer, so the you can have text messages come through. I had everything turned yeah. off. I mean, if I, if I didn't have people I loved in the world, I probably would turn it off for longer, you know, but no one has house phones anymore. That's the problem. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I think it's a problem that we don't have landlines anymore because 
so many are not, I mean, it's common to not have a landline anymore because for emergencies, you know, you feel like you have to have some kind yeah. of, so yeah. I, I would, I would, I could easily go a couple hours afterwards, but it's definitely true. Like I had to turn it off and put it far away from me because I just couldn't concentrate otherwise. Okay. Interesting. Thank you. Hi. Uh, you mentioned education and research as being potential remedies here. Um, I think that when you think about something like cigarettes, we don't rely on education uh, because it's really hard and addictive. Um, and it's the same with, uh, uh, and then and then with research, um, uh, we don't currently have as many answers as we would like, but that data does exist in the hands of the companies that uh, that hold it. Um, so, uh, do you, do you feel like there's like enough? potential or hope to fix those things? Because I'm a bit of a pessimist. I feel like it's a hard fight. Um, what do you think on that? It's definitely a hard fight. And, I... Sorry, it's de and there's definitely a reason why like all tech bosses don't let their kids have iPhones and iPads and stuff. You know, they're in on the Intel. But I think it's, I think it's difficult. It is, it, is a, it is a fight, but we have to try. I want to be a part of a conversation that at least is trying that, you know, because to not and just become a victim to it for the rest of our lives is not, it, it's depressing, <laughs> you know, it, it is a very pessimistic thought, but, you know, at least it's connecting us in new ways. Like we're all here in this room relating to these weird feelings we've had at one time or another. Like, you know, I think human IRL human connectivity is the key to solving so many things, which is what I think is really cool and which is why I also wanted to do this book. Like we're talking about things that happen online, but it brings us together in real life, offline. So like you said, there is a lot of research. I think we're lacking the long-term research still, but the effects have been so immediate that there is research and the impact is vast. So at least us having these conversations is one positive and, 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 and the ideas of our own self-awareness, you know? I mean, because even cigarettes, so many people have stopped smoking, you know? Like, um, I was raised in Japan, and honestly, until six months ago, you could smoke everywhere. It was, it, you know, you forget that people, can, that people used to smoke in restaurants and pubs and all these things, you know, things can shift. You know, the smoking ban, what, when did that come in? I don't know, 10, 15 years ago? But how many peop less people smoke now? I think there is power in big structural changes. I think there needs to be, you know, we need to be regulating tech companies more. I think the problem with the government being so in ha hand in hand with these giant tech institutions because of data, security, all of these things, you know, because of the big money that's in it, you know, I think it's super dangerous, but at least we have to push for more regulation. I think that's definitely true. But this is where it starts. Like, people have to get angry. Okay, more questions? Uh, lady in the black and white top. Uh, hello. Uh, I have a little sister. She's 19, and she suffers a lot from 
the pressure of posting the perfect picture on Instagram and like I can tell that she suffers some anxiety when she doesn't get it or she doesn't get like many likes. What do you think is like the solution to avoid that? I think it's to just, once again, I think to be able to have these kinds of conversations. I mean, I, I haven't figured out exactly how I'm going to do it, but I really definitely want to go more into schools and have these conversations and kind of have these kinds of sharing circles. Because it is like the, the, the WhatsApp group I was talking about. It's like a peer-to-peer -peer problem, right? So, and I hope it's ultimately what we, all, we grow out of. Like, what would we have all been like at 19 with this technology now? You know, or I think back to moments... Like when I was younger, how what my issues were, you know, and hopefully with these with the aid of these conversations, we start to shift and grow out out of these think you know because time and those moments seem so important when you're young, right that being liked by your friend group or being everything or, or, or that one embarrassing thing that happened like shame is such a powerful emotion like our bodies don't forget what shame feels like in the body. So her to feel shame from, you know, an image not being liked or, or how people perceive her beauty. I think that's also the problem is structural and it goes so far back to, especially us as women, beauty being so important. The most important thing about us and how we're valued in the world is based on how we look. So... I think these are the things that also we all think when we're younger and we, we begin to grow out of them. But we could grow out of them faster, especially aided by conversation. I don't know. I mean, not to promote my book, but maybe buy her my book. <laughs> no, but, you know, I, I, I did the book because I wanted to have more conversation about it. It wasn't just to sell books at all. It was because I think the need for this honest conversation especially from someone like me that isn't in the, is in the industry of making curated images, for example. And for me, I think because the problem with social media is we put each other on pedestals, right? We all look at each other's lives and think like, wow, she's so beautiful. She's got it all figured out. But he, you know, it's not gendered. Um, even though women are more affected by it because we spend more time on it and because of, you know patriarchy, et cetera. But, uh, you know, to be able to take down those pedestals and be like, listen, like, this is what, this isn't my whole life. You're not seeing my whole life on here. And nor do I owe my whole life to this little square thing. Like, I think to be able to remember that we can't see what's in an Im what's everything from just an image, you know? Like, in, in art degrees or art class, you're, you're taught to critique an image or critique a painting, a photograph. If you saw a photograph in a museum context, you would be, you would, you know, be encouraged to critique it more. But now we're just absorbing so many images all the time without even thinking anything of it. We just take them as truth. Like that's the whole situation when that's not possible. I think we should, what needs to happen is more critique, uh, understanding the critique of imagery. The example of the WhatsApp and the group photograph where everybody can edit their uh, faces because they make them look beautiful, I expect. But there's, a, there's another trend which I, I kind of think is coming about, which is similar, and it's um, kind of virtual signalling where people are standing up and saying, 
how wonderful and lovely and compassionate they are, but it's just kind of a vanity because they don't often do anything. So there's a great deal of that on social media, isn't there, that it's just vacuous. I'm lovely, can you see me being such a great person? So it's not a visual image, it's a, a behavioural vanity, isn't it? Have you comment on that? They can also come in hand in hand depending on the app. For example, like on Instagram, you would put an image with the with the I'm a great person underneath it. So I don't think it's just the Twitters and the other rest of social media. I think the danger with this, and we were just talking about this upstairs actually, with language is evolving so quickly, you know, what, around these sensitive, subject, uh, sensitive topics such as gender, race, identity, you know, moral ethics, post the Me Too movement, et cetera, et cetera. We're all we now have the diction and access to seeing all this jargon and people using it, but we're, our behaviors aren't evolving fast enough to keep up. And by using the words, we're in danger of convincing ourselves that we're sometimes not part of the problem. Ourselves, all of us, you know, we all have a bias, you know, like we all have blind spots because we've all had different sets of experiences and we are all learning. So I think the danger of the virtue signaling is that it convinces us to not do the internal work that it actually takes to make bigger changes in the world, to change our perspectives, you know, for the long term. Cool. That's all we have time for, unfortunately. But thank you, everyone, so much for coming. And thank you for, to Naomi for providing so much insight into the way in which social media affects us. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, head to our YouTube channel for inspiring talks, interviews and animations.